Good morning. Welcome to Laurel Heights. I'm inviting you to have your Bible ready in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And then a few minutes after that, reference will be made to Matthew chapter 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This year, in sermons once or twice a month, I'm preaching through 1 Corinthians. And today, this sermon is based on the first part of chapter 6. The latter part of chapter 6, having been covered two weeks ago, in connection with chapter 5 and the subject of sexual immorality. Let me remind us of where we are in this series. From the first four chapters, we have a good picture of what was happening in that church that needed critical attention. In that local church in Corinth, there were squabbles, jealousy, competition, immaturity, with more focus on men than on Jesus Christ. It was so bad, Paul had to address their division with stinging indictments and bold corrective instruction. And one basic problem was their view of men, preachers and teachers and the apostles. In chapter 4, Paul wants them to understand how they should regard Paul and Apollos and the other faithful teachers. These good men did not seek some sort of celebrity status. They were not after fans to form a fan club. They were stewards who delivered God's message. And that's covered very well in chapter 4. In chapter 5, two weeks ago, we viewed their ugly scandal of a man among them who was guilty of sexual immorality and their need to deal with that. This man's relationship with a woman was against the law of God. He was there among them, but no action was taken. And as we studied that, we brought into that study the last part of chapter 6 in 1 Corinthians, where Paul made very clear statements about sexual sin. He said, flee sexual immorality. Know what it is from the Bible and run the other way. And that brings us now to chapter 6. Listen please, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 11. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? 
but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Our path this morning into this passage will be first to consider how the typical pagan judge would have reacted to this, and then we'll move higher and we'll consider what Paul said about it. All right? I want you to imagine first the perspective of the pagan judge in Corinth. That may be a stretch for us, but it will help to imagine his perspective. As a pagan judge in the courts of Corinth, you don't care about Jesus Christ. You've heard about his followers, and you are aware that there is a group of people in Corinth who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, but you're a pagan judge in Corinth. You don't care about all that. And then one day, two of these people come in your court and stand before you. And they have some sort of conflict between them that they're all worked up about, but have not been able to solve on their own or from their brethren. You have to calm their anger, listen to their case against one another, and then issue some sort of settlement. Now, remember, you're a pagan judge. You care nothing about Jesus Christ and his followers. And now with these people standing before you, presenting their conflict, what do you think about them now? Your opinion of these people has just been seriously diminished. And any worldly people who witness this scene are certainly not impressed by the conduct of people who claim to be following Christ. You are thinking as a pagan judge, these people who claim to have a perfect master can't even settle their own disputes, and they are certainly not united. Now, let me take you somewhere else, and this will be easier. Imagine that you are the Apostle Paul. And you learn that Christians in Corinth are so conflicted and so immature in their inner relationships, they can't even settle their own disputes. They're taking their conflicts before unbelieving judges in the courts of men, bringing reproach on themselves and bringing into question their allegiance to Jesus Christ. 
So as the Apostle Paul, what do you write to the brethren about this? You say words like this, You yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? Well, a question now arises when you get to this point. If this is not the right way to settle conflict and disputes, then what is the right way? Matthew 18, 15 through 17. And as you turn there, what I want to say is, there are not problems of this nature that Jesus didn't give solutions for. Now, you cannot come up with a problem, an argument, a dilemma, a situation among Christians that's real that Jesus didn't speak to. So, there are not problems of this nature that Jesus didn't give solutions for. And He gives a solution here in Matthew eighteen fifteen to 17. So, I don't go to the pagan judge... I don't go to the courts of men. I go right here. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. The ideal, the ideal is that we are all so devoted to Christ and we are so careful and so busy to obey Him, and so ready to repent when we sin. Such good attitudes are nurtured, there is no conflict. And when there is, it is solved. But when conflict arises, we rely on the conflict resolution method Jesus gave, believing that no human court and no human judge can do any better in conflict resolution than Jesus Christ. Now, watch what Paul does next. There is not in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, at verse 8, an end, a period, and then a completely different subject introduced. Watch what Paul does next in verses 9 through 11. He reminds them of what conversion to Christ is all about. It's about changing. What you were before is gone. It is a distant memory. You have changed when you're buried with Christ in baptism. Now, after that change, you act differently. 
maintain that change that God enabled by His grace for you to embrace when you responded to Jesus Christ. So Paul needs to remind them of what conversion is all about. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, this begins with a very clear statement of high alert. A very clear statement of high alert and hard reality. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, that's one reality that brings sinners to the Lord in the first place. That if you continue in your sin, you cannot claim the inheritance of the righteous. So you give up sin when you're baptized into Christ and you determine thereafter to be righteous and when you sin to repent. Knowing what it says here, that only the righteous will inherit what God has promised to the righteous. If you go back into the sins of your former life before conversion, you forfeit this inheritance. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul says, don't be deceived about that. And Paul is extremely explicit, giving very clear examples of conduct and misbehavior that was left at the cross. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. These are examples of misbehaviors left at the cross when you first come to the Lord. Don't tell Paul, well, I've been baptized. So I'm okay now. If after baptism you walk back into those previous vices, you need this wake-up call. At the top of the slide, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then Paul reminds them of what conversion is when he says, And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. The message is to cause the Corinthian people to think, are you really converted people? And if you are, are you acting like converted people now? If you don't, if you don't act like converted people now, here's what kicks in. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now because of all this, you know what we can say to people? after we've said it to ourselves. With full credibility and confidence, we can say to people who are lost 
And without God, you can change. Sometimes you'll hear people say, I just can't stop. I just can't stop. The gospel says you can. But you hear people say, I can't stop being mad. I can't stop complaining, cussing, drinking, smoking, lying, stealing, sexual sin, pornography, neglect of my family and the church, greed, dabbling in false doctrine, immature attitudes toward people and gossip. I just can't stop. The gospel says you can. You believe the gospel? If you want to, you can stop hearing the gospel, believing in Christ, confessing your faith, repenting, being baptized. God says, I'll forgive you and then I'll help you stop. You've got my word, my promise, and then in another sense, you've got my word. You can stop and understand that if you don't stop, if you don't follow Christ out of sin and nourish your mind with the word... If you don't stop, or if you go back, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. People will say, well, it is just the way I am. You don't have to be the way you are. Or people say, God loves me anyway, and He understands it's okay, and everybody has their faults, and nobody is perfect, and I had all these disadvantages, and and I'm a victim. The gospel answers all of that. You can change. God promises and Christ died to provide the gift of salvation. Corinth was a morally bankrupt city where it was extremely hard to do what was right. It was challenging to maintain a marriage We will discover when we come to chapter 7 next month. It was challenging to raise children. It was challenging to maintain a unified church in Corinth. Human wisdom that was essentially godless and foolish dominated that society and that community. Entertainment of every carnal variety was available on every corner in Corinth. Yet as bad as it was in Corinth, the Apostle Paul came, preached the gospel, and here's what happened. There were people who changed. There were sexually immoral people who left that lifestyle, walked out of those wrong relationships. Drunkards became sober. Swindlers stopped cheating. Thieves stopped stealing. Homosexuals came out in repentance, renouncing their perversion. They changed. Now, it is important to point out they didn't change by their own independent power. The message they heard that changed them was not a message man came up with. It was from a higher source. And it cannot be said they were picking themselves up by their bootstraps. No, it was the cross. The message of the cross, the gospel. By hearing the gospel, believing in Christ, 
and responding, they were tapping into God's life-changing power. When you give your life to God, the excuses become baggage you need to toss overboard. When you obey the gospel, wrong thoughts can be captured and killed. What you once considered impossible now happens because you've become convinced that all things are possible with God. Cutting ties with people who enabled your sin is now possible because you've asked God to be on your side. The message of 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 is you can change if the sinners in Corinth could obey the gospel and change I know that people today can. There is in this book the same message that changed them. Now, I have somewhere else I need to go with you. Here's what we have to be real careful about, folks like us, when we read this text. It's very tempting to read this passage and come to terms with what it means partially... But in the process of reading the passage, to read yourself out of it. I don't drink. I'm not sexually immoral. I don't steal. I'm not a swindler. Mark this. Paul is not saying these are the only people God saves and Jesus died for. No, the point is, if God can change people this bad who respond to the gospel, this lost, this deep in sin, nobody has an excuse. Nobody has to be lost. Whatever form of disobedience, private or public, whatever has kept you from God, from righteousness... If God can change these people in the city of Corinth who live this way, He can change anyone willing to become an obedient believer in Jesus Christ. Now, how serious is this? The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's how serious this is. We have a variety of messages and systems and conveniences and support groups and many theories bantered around today about how to change people, how to get people out of their cycle of destructive behavior. Some of those groups and friends and techniques may have some value with certain kinds of problems. But folks, when it comes to getting out of sin, being forgiven by God, and the kind of change in your life that is heaven-bound, there is just the gospel of Christ. No other message. The same message that was delivered by the apostles of Christ that we deliver today when we open the Bible and tell you what it says. One dominant feature of this good news is you can 
change. And if you need to change right now, will you come while we stand together to sing?